people didn't know there was a shed in Ontario before the spring of 2006. However, in April of that year, the town's name was on TV and radio newscasts all over the world. Eight bodies discovered in abandoned vehicles near a farmer's field. How could this happen in Shedden of all places? This week on the 519 Podcast, we look into the Banditos killings. We'll hear from author of the Banditos Massacre, Peter Edwards, Jerry Langton, an author who's written several books about biker gangs, Blackburn Media's Craig Needles, who covered the trial, and lawyer Clay Powell. Here's your host, Scott Kitching. It was a chilly Saturday morning in Shedden on April 8th, 2006. Nothing out of the ordinary for that time of year, but at a farm not far from the 401, a discovery of something that was anything but ordinary was about to occur. A farmer spotted four vehicles near his property. When he went for a closer look, he found that there were blankets covering the windows. He was naturally suspicious, so he called the police. And that led to a gruesome discovery. Eight dead bodies in the vehicles. As the news broke, speculation ran rampant all over Canada. Who were these men? Why were they murdered and left at the side of the road? Well, it turns out they were the victims of the biggest biker massacre the world had ever seen. As we would find out, the victims were members of the Bandidos motorcycle gang, and they were murdered about 14 kilometers away at a farmhouse near Iona. How could such a thing happen at a farm between St. Thomas and Chatham? Peter Edwards, the author of The Bandido Massacre, The True Story of Bikers, Brotherhood and Betrayal, says the killing left people in the area in a state of shock. You think of London, you think of hockey players, you think of um, kind of a sort of a shishi university, you think of uh, the Ivy Foundation, you know, Blackburns, like old money, close to Stratford, and then all of a sudden you're um, close to the world's biggest biker massacre. It's, it's just not what you connect. Uh, so I think there was a sense of, of disbelief. I think um, I, I think it it was like it couldn't have happened, but it did. And the, the very worst in Toronto never got this bad. Um, Quebec never got this bad. Um, London just doesn't seem like the place for it. I mean, London seems like the place where you have um, rowdy homecoming parties. You know, it doesn't seem like like the place where you get the world's largest biker mass. So, what led to the events of April two thousand six? Was it greed? Jealousy? Spite? Well, in many ways, it was all of the above. But it was also about ego and the man at the center of the murders. A man who has been described as a racist sociopath. A man named Wayne Kellestine. Wayne Kellestine would be a um, full-time project for a good psychiatrist. He had Nazi lightning bolts. Um, he'd sign his name with them. He wore um, a lightning bolt, um, sometimes on his vest, which meant that he was a killer. He um, had a sign going into his property. Do you believe in an after afterlife? Come inside and find out. I mean, he had a Nazi flag inside his um, uh, barn. He had a whole bunch of guns hidden inside his place, but then he never took care of the guns. So he'd get all these illegal weapons and then he'd ruin them. And so he'd have to get more illegal weapons. And so he had all these rusted out guns. Um, he was kind of a scrawny looking guy. Um, he had a, a reputation for just being right off the charts crazy and the Hells Angels didn't want him. Like they um, they, they would have, um, there's almost nobody they would have, um, or he was just the absolute last person the Hells Angels wanted. The Hells Angels didn't want him, but Wayne Kellestine wanted to be a biker. 
He wanted to sell drugs, and he wanted the power. This led to his eventual alliance with a man named John Mushedri, one of the victims of the massacre. Craig Needles of Blackburn Media covered the murders and eventually the trial of those who committed them. Kellestein was a member of a few biker gangs over the years. He was in the Annihilators, the Loners, and eventually the Banditos. Kellestein and Mushedri had been in several gangs together. They were buddies. Eventually, Mushedri became the president of the Canadian Banditos. That's a small club, not making a lot of money. There's a big rivalry between the Toronto Banditos, they called themselves the No Surrender Crew, and the Winnipeg Banditos, who weren't even really full-patch members of the club yet. So the Toronto group didn't even have a clubhouse. The chapter eventually decided, because they were, I guess, an embarrassment, that the Toronto group was a target of the people at the top of the gang in Houston. Part of what led to the murders was Kellestein's jealousy. He wanted to be at the top of the club in Canada. But in Houston, that didn't mean much. Necessity was the reason most of these men had been invited to join the club. The banditos were controlled basically by Texas and they didn't think much of Toronto. Uh, Toronto really was kind of a sad sack group. And at the same time, the Hells Angels really were um, uh, becoming a major force. And so a lot of them were getting paranoid, like the Hells Angels didn't really want them around. And um, uh, there'd been a, a major biker war in in Quebec, and that's when the banditos got into Canada. Like the banditos were, um, some of the Canadian bikers appealed to the banditos to join their club so that they could look stronger against the Hells Angels. And, and Quebec had actually been nicknamed the Red Zone because of all the blood that was spilled there. And at one point, the biker were accounted for 17% of the provincial murder rate. So it was quite, um, quite something. And so the banditos got in as a, um, a kind of a show of force against the Hells Angels by the people who are losing the biker war. The Canadian banditos were um, were involved in, in drug trafficking, but none of them were really doing that well in it. So um, there's sort of the joke that it's criminal but not organized, and so it's not really organized crime. The No Surrender crew included eight men from the Toronto area. John Mushedri, their leader, he was called Boxer. There was Frank Bammer Salerno. He was a longtime friend of Mushedri and knew Kellestein. The rest of the Toronto members were Luis Raposo, who was known as Chopper. There was George Cryerakis, who was called Crash. And there was Paul Big Polly Sinopoli, George Jessam, who was called Pony, Michael Little Mikey Trotta, and Jamie Goldberg Flans, who was Jewish. Which, for an anti-Semite like Kellestein, was obviously a point of contention. But how did the relationship between Kellestein, the Winnipeg Banditos, and the No Surrender crew degenerate into mass murder? Jerry Langton, an author who has written several books about Canadian biker gangs, explains. Essentially, there was a huge difference of opinion. Uh, Southwestern Ontario, uh, uh, Rock Machine, Bandito, Toronto um, chapter did not see eye to eye. Uh, the Toronto chapter tended to be generally loser types. Uh, some of them didn't uh, ride uh, motorcycles. They didn't know how. They lived with their parents. They took financial assistance from the government. Um, one of them was, you know, famously over 400 pounds. Um, and they just really were closer to the original definition of a biker game. They were guys who just wanted to, you know, drink and fight and have what was for them a good time. And uh, they didn't have a lot of money. But uh, the, the Chatham chapter did because uh, Kellestine 
sold a ton of meth, and when he wouldn't uh, share that, they had a huge problem. They, he wouldn't let anyone else into business. He, you know, wouldn't let anyone work for him. Um, uh, there was a huge standoff between uh, Toronto and Chatham. Kelsey, he approached the bandidos in Houston and said, this isn't working, um, we're not interested in them, uh, we want them gone. And so the, uh, Houston told them, well, if, if you can, pull the patches, which means to take someone's patch off them, thereby retiring them from the game, the club. There was a probationary chapter of the Bandidos in Winnipeg, and uh, their president was a very ambitious uh, man named Michael Sandum, and he was quite the character. He was a uh, serial liar. He lied about being a spy. He lied about being a, a bodyguard to Princess Patricia, even though she died when he was four years old. Um, he it said that he had invented a unbeatable martial art, which he named after himself. And uh, so he joined Kelstein, and uh, Kelstein promised to them that they would become a full chapter, which means uh, no longer probationary, if they helped um, pull the patches of the Toronto guys. And so Kelstein invited the entire... Toronto chapter to a party at his farm. The Winnipeg Banditos, who weren't even really full-patch members of the gang, included Sandum, who was a former police officer and, as we'd later find out, a pathological liar. He was joined by a nightclub owner with a lengthy criminal past named Dwight Big D. Mushi. There was also Brett Bull Gardner, Marcelo Aravina, who was known as Fat Ass, and a man known today only by his initials, M.H., Kellestein also had a man living on his couch at the time. His name was Frank Mather. The seven of them would eventually all be present for the murders of the No Surrender crew. Winnipeg wanted to be a real business enterprise and Manitoba is a relatively small province. And so it wouldn't be that hard if you got a good drug pipeline to, um, to become something. The Toronto chapter... Um, it was sort of a sad social experiment. I mean, it was coming apart at the seams. The uh, Kelestine, if you consider him at the top of it, nobody liked him. Uh, people didn't like being around him. Nobody's girlfriend wanted to be around Kelestine. So there's nothing cool about being around Kelestine. The um, uh, second in command, in a way, if you count that as being boxer, Kelestine needed him. He needed his likability, but in the end, he murdered him. So huge, huge conflict there and then a lot of the other ones were uh, people who sort of liked the camaraderie they liked saying bro a lot they liked um, having a beer with their friends they liked um, using cocaine but they they weren't real real organized criminals and they, they definitely didn't want to compete with the hell's angels they just weren't in that league I think Winnipeg wanted to be involved so that they could get a drug pipeline and that would give them money so I that makes sense to me that it the better your drug supply, the more money you can make, the more you can dominate your rivals, um, the more you can grow. So that that makes sense. And um, if you're in Winnipeg, then bringing them up through um, through Ontario is, is pretty logical. And so um, if you believe Kalestine that um, he had had access to this, that he could give you these um, 
these drugs, then that part makes sense. The heads of the banditos in the United States, based in Houston, were embarrassed on some level by the Toronto group. In a meeting with Kalestine, where they spoke over the Canada-U.S. border, they agreed that the patches for the No Surrender crew would be pulled by any means necessary. As Jerry Langton explains, this is a big deal in the biker world. Uh, well, the banditos have had a restructuring where, you know, non-U.S. banditos and uh, American banditos have become two separate but uh, uh, cooperative uh, clubs. There are other, you know, clubs in uh, the U.S. that have chased the Hells Angels out of certain places like Philadelphia, much of Southern California. But those clubs aren't really that interested in Canada. Um, the Hells Angels are very, very entrenched here. And although, you know, clubs like the, the Mongols and the Pagans who are very successful against the uh, uh, Hells Angels in the U.S. have not really had a toehold in Canada. They've tried a few times, but they generally are dealing with, you know, sort of flight of your characters and there is a fear of Canada amongst American bikers I've talked to many of them and they're like you know everybody's nuts up there you know it's just killing for drugs is constant and um, uh, so a lot of the clubs you know it's just too violent for them uh, it seems funny to say that you know a club from Texas uh, scared of the violence in Ontario but it's true and um, you know so I don't see that happening under the present uh, circumstances, but if, um, you know, if a club like the Pagans or uh, the Mongols or even the Vagos um, made a concerted effort, there could be violence, but I don't think it would be sort of the house cleaning we saw uh, with the banditos. I mean, Kalestine was sort of a one and only figure, and uh, he found quite the student in the rivalry set the stage for what Kellestein called a church meeting at his farm, where the inner club drama was set to boil over. Sandom and Raposo had been in a dispute over club dues. Sinopoli begged to not have to attend the meeting. Tensions were high. Removing patches from a full chapter was never going to be easy. Both sides had their own ideas about how it would play out. Kellestein had an entire plan of his own. I think the massacre came about in um, Calestine's head. Uh, he made it seem like there was a threat. And so then they started, it's this bizarre scene where they started gathering up Calestine's weapons and getting them ready so that they would work. Like a lot of them just weren't functional. And so they were fixing up the weapons. The Winnipeg chapter were, um, were kind of led by Calestine. And by the time they realized that this guy has really serious problems, um, it was too late for them. And so they... Um, it, the Winnipeg chapter, they were ambitious. Um, they weren't um, they weren't looking to kill people. They were looking to gain a drug route, gain power, maybe gain money, um, become a somebody in the in the Manitoba underworld. And um Calestine, bikers always act crazy, or they like to act crazy. And the weird thing about Calestine was he was crazy. And so um by the time they caught on, this wasn't an act that he really was um seriously missing um, quite a few marbles. It was too late to do much about it. Kellestine went about his plan. The Toronto crew was invited to his farm, and even though some of them tried to get out of the meeting, they were told they'd be kicked out of the club if they didn't show up. 
All eight of them went to the farmhouse near Iona. None of them would leave the farm alive. They went out there, they go into the bar with Kellestine, and the Winnipeg guys have the high ground. They're above, they're in the rafters. Not too long after the arrival, there's some shooting. Michael Sandum at the trial said that chopper Louis Raposo had shot first. Sandum told a lot of lies during his testimony, though. It's hard to know whether he's telling the truth or what actually happened. But there were some shots. Big Polly and Crash, they try to get away. They get shot, but they're not killed. They're on the ground. They're bleeding. And Kellestine, as we all heard at the trial, actually offered Mushedri a chance to switch sides before the killing started. Essentially, yeah, join us. This doesn't have to happen. Mushedri's big concern, though, and I think that he gets a lot of credit for this, was getting an ambulance for the two guys that came to the meeting with him because they had been shot. They were on the ground. They were bleeding. Eventually, Kellestine brings Mushedri outside and says, okay, nope, you're going to have to go. But not before Mushedri calls his partner and asks how his infant daughter was doing. Doesn't say anything about the fact that he's possibly about to be murdered. After Mushedri was killed, the other members of the No Surrender crew were marched out of the barn and into various vehicles one by one where they were shot. There was this bizarre um, situation where the the victims, the uh, members of the Toronto chapter, were marched one by one out of the barn and executed. And so it was it was called an assembly line. And they just took them out and, and killed them. And um, a big irony was that they had called them brothers. And a lot of times when they talk, they say, love you, bro. And there's kind of a joke that if someone says too many love you bros you're in trouble like they're setting you up for something and so they marched them up one by one and were killing them and the uh, Winnipeg chapter who were part of the execution group I think started to catch on that something was horribly wrong but what do you do you're already uh, you're already facing a life term and so they just kept on going and the Winnipeg group and the Toronto group didn't really know each other. Like it wasn't like they were friendly. They were the same patches, but they they had no real personal relationship. Halfway in, when after they had killed three of the eight people, um, it was later shown in um, intercepted conversations that he knew something had gone horribly wrong. But then, what do you do? I mean, they'd already. It was almost like you're swimming across the river and you get halfway across and decide you. You're not quite sure what you're doing. And so he kept on going, but he, you could tell that at that point, he had a lot of um, sympathy and respect for Mushedre, who he had just murdered. But then what do you do? I mean, he's already going to get a life sentence. And so um, they just kept on doing it. At trial, it was called an execution assembly line. Flans and Trotta had even been ordered to clean up the blood of the men who were murdered before them, which they did. But why wouldn't they, or anyone else for that matter, fight back or try to get away? Yeah, that's the really odd part, um, is that they didn't fight back. And the um, at one point, the Toronto chapter outnumbered the other ones. I mean, there were eight people in the murdered group and six people in the killing group. If they had stormed them, then it would make sense that they, they had greater numbers. They would have overpowered them. But there was a numbness, um, a horror, a, um, a shock there. And uh, gradually, one by one, as they were let out, um, that was it. You think, wouldn't you run? Wouldn't you fight? Wouldn't you do something? And I, um, I think there's just the sense of shock and unreality. You know, they had been acting. It had been almost like, um, like little boys. You know, you put a towel over your shoulder and have a fake sword and you pretend you're tough. And it was almost like they're doing the adult version of that. And then all of a sudden it became real. 
There was one moment of bravery where uh, John Machedri, Celestine desperately wanted him on his side. Like he was the one who, um, the respected one and the one who people actually did love. And so Celestine desperately wanted him on his side, but Machedri wouldn't go over. And Machedri knew that uh, he would be killed and he just wouldn't do it. And it was picked up later in a, um, a wiretap conversation, one of the Winnipeg group telling another one, you know, that he went out like a man and he was, he was really, really impressed that that he just wouldn't do it. The Kellestine tried to scare him over into being part of the killers rather than the killed side, and he wouldn't go. And then, and this is the part of the whole thing that I remember the best that I think was the most powerful was that um, Boxer actually laughed at Kellestine. Like that was the most powerful thing he could do. He had a gun pointed at him and he laughed at him like, um, you're too ridiculous. And then he was shot, but he was shot while laughing at his killer. When the night was over, Every member of the Toronto chapter was dead. All that was left for Kellestine and the Winnipeg chapter to do was dispose of the bodies. And if it wasn't obvious that they didn't know what they were doing before, it's quite clear now. The idea was they'd plant them in an area with lots of Hell's Angels and everybody would blame the Hell's Angels. And so they um, they loaded it up and it's, it's almost, I mean, if there wasn't so much tragedy and sadness, it would be, you'd be laughing, you know, that they loaded up these cars with all these victims. They couldn't close the trunk on one of them. So the trunk is flapping back and forth and they have a dead body there and they're driving on the highway. Then they ran out of gas. And so they, they didn't have enough gas to make it to Kitchener, which isn't that far from London, which is just for organized crime. I mean, obviously there's crime, but for organized, you know, you're really stretching the word organized. They knew they were low on fuel. So the four vehicles, three cars and Jessam's tow truck, were ditched on a gravel road near Shedden, just 12 kilometers away from Kellestine's farm. With the reputation Kellestine already had with law enforcement and the proximity the bodies had to his farm, it certainly didn't take police long to come up with some suspects. I knew that there were only so many bikers that extreme in the London area, especially just outside of London, and that if Kellestine wasn't killed, he must have been one of the killers. I mean, there's no way in the world this happened outside of him. I mean, that reputation went a long, long ways. I'd heard bad, bad things about him um, long before this. On April 9th, less than 48 hours after the murders, Kellestine was arrested at his farm, as was Gardner and a man named Eric Neeson, who would later plead guilty to being an accessory to destroying evidence at the farm. Police would announce the charges the following day, when they also publicly noted for the first time that all of the victims had been members of the Banditos. Sandum, Aravina, and Mushi would all be arrested in Winnipeg on June 16th. We're looking at a massive trial here, right? Eight counts of first-degree murder, six defendants, just huge production. There's tons of lawyers around, there's space for the media. The courtroom was massive. It was supposed to take six months, winds up being seven, and it was unlike any of the trial ever covered, obviously. Metal detectors outside of the courtroom, security, it was something to see. Clay Powell, a well-known Canadian lawyer, represented Kellestine in the case. He says it was unlike any other trial he'd ever been a part of. Very early on, uh, I had a chat with Wayne Callistine, uh, and he said, look, let, let, let me make a couple things clear to you, okay? I said, yeah, sure. He said, number one, I'm never going to give evidence uh, in a trial. I don't care what you tell me or where, how it stands or whatever. I'm not going to. That was his way of saying, I'm not a rat, you know. Um, and I wouldn't have expected him to give evidence. 
so you had a situation where um, you had the eyewitness boy, you had, uh, well, it was, it was just overwhelming. So what what do you do? You know, you you can't really move it up um, first degree down to something lesser. Um, the Crown's not going to listen to such a, an argument, and I'll blame him. I was a Crown many years. So it, it was a very unusual case because it was, I mean, the whole thing was bizarre. How how would these these eight guys, and they were big boys, you know, come down and agree to a meeting in a barn, agree to no guns. From that there on, it was a game over. The trial started in July of 2009 with the Crown star witness, M.H. So this guy, M.H., was one of the Winnipeg bikers. He was with them. But he takes a deal from the prosecution and testified against the other killers. Now, his testimony, and I, I still remember hearing it to this day, it was, it was emotional. He was crying. He was sad. There were family members who were in the courtroom. They were crying. But he really painted the whole picture for the prosecution and everything that M.H. was saying lined up with the forensic evidence that the Crown had presented. Now, the big thing that I remember about M.H. testifying was that we had several Crown lawyers come up to us sort of in the area where all the reporters were sitting and said several times, do not use this guy's name, do not use this guy's name, just say M.H. And to me, it felt like there was a legit fear that if this guy's identity was publicly known, he was going to get murdered. M.H.'s testimony is still in the minds of people who were in the courtroom that day. He made it very real, like he, all of a sudden you felt like you were there. And all of a sudden, I I know for me, um, uh, Boxer's daughter was in the the courtroom. And all of a sudden it becomes very, very human. You know, there's a guy who um, could have done something, could have saved him, didn't. Um, And then there's this um, young mother who's crying her eyes out. And so that that became a big deal. I remember... um, Oh, in a week during one of the breaks at noon, I was in my car and um, it, it, it's awful, but some people were uh, taking snipey little shots at the families of, of some of the victims. Like there, there was some pretty nasty um, uh, sort of mean behavior going on in court. And the daughter of one of the victims was walking through the parking lot and she was just bawling her eyes out. And um, I told her to get in my car and don't let the, those people see you crying like this. And, it was it was weird because um, at that point it became real. When you looked at MH, all of a sudden you think there's the guy who made this woman cry, and or there's one of the guys who did it, and it it goes from being a ridiculous example of male behavior to um, um, she's going home to a little kid, and the kid's grandfather just got um, he just got murdered, and she's going to have to explain that someday. So. I think when you put a human face on it and someone's talking and MH actually teared up when he was testifying and however much you, um, you bought into that, you could also see this woman and um, who was definitely not acting, you know, who was crying her eyes out. So it became a very, very real thing. Otherwise it becomes, um, you know, gangster killing gangster who cares. With MH's testimony, Kellestine and the Winnipeg chapter's case was over before it started. They were all there. They all participated in various ways. And their defenses were almost farcical. There was the idea of, um, for a defense, saying that 
I was scared too. Like I had a gun, but there were, there were seven other guys with guns. And if I had done anything, they would have shot me. And so um, they, they're, that was about as much of a defense as you could go. Um, and then, I mean, they marched them out one by one and killed them. And so sort of the assembly line nature of it, it was hard to claim too much innocence. It was interesting because it's almost like you're watching a play. Like it's almost like you're watching some uh, some morality play about, you know, when do you become guilty and when don't you? Like one of the people connected um, or who ended up being convicted of murder didn't fire a shot um, wasn't in the banditos and had just been sleeping on Calistine's couch. And so he's like the sad sack character who needed a place to sleep. And then Calistine kind of enrolls him in this little army. But then on the other hand, he did have a gun. He could have saved, saved those ones. He could have just handed the gun to um, someone like Machedri. I mean, he could have done something. If you're part of the murder by confining the person until the killer gets there, then the argument is that you're you're one of the killers. Sandum was the first of the accused to take the stand and provided perhaps the most surprising moment of the trial. I'll never forget sitting in that courtroom when he said he was trying to be a police informant against the banditos. There were gas from the gallery. I look over at the other guys who were on trial and I had them, they were making contact with me. They were doing eye rolls and, and head shakes. It was obvious, I think, at that point that he was not telling the truth. That was clear to just about everyone in the room, Powell said. I, I have never figured saying them out, quite frankly, what his, what his game was or whatever, but we're certainly not there to be an informant against anybody. Why did he have to want to be a bandito? He, he, you know, he'd been a policeman. He'd come from different backgrounds and all the others. But uh, he was a cold-blooded bastard that started it. At the end of the trial, the jury's results came out as expected. All six defendants guilty on at least six murder counts. Sandum, Mushi, and Kellestine were found guilty on all eight. All six men had various appeals that have either been dropped or rejected. They will all spend the rest of their lives in jail. I mean, it's obviously a crime story, but some of it is just... Um a human nature story, you know, like who do we follow? When do we have the nerve to break away from the pack? Um, if you're supposed to be a nonconformist by being a biker, why do you stand there taking part in an assembly line murder or stand there waiting to be murdered? I mean, there's like robots. For all this rugged individualism, you didn't see much of it that night. Yeah, and they and now there's a whole bunch of them in prison, you know, for quite a while because of it. And um and it just sort of the irony, like you're joining a club that's supposed to be about being a nonconformist, and yet you, in the end, you're acting like a sheep. I think it's about sort of male bonding, though, and I think it's about wanting to um, feel immortal and wanting to feel way bigger than what you are and to, um, you're not just another cog in the machine. And then I think the big irony is that in the end, they were total cogs in the machine. They're either killers or killed. It was like a assembly line slaughterhouse for no reason whatsoever. I mean... The winners were going to be kicked out by the Americans anyway. Like, so they're fighting for it. Who gets the biggest piece of nothing? To this day, Powell wonders how this all could have happened. When it was all said and done, and uh, he was going to convict them and, or sentence them, I advised he that I would not be there on that day of sentencing. And I just took my car and I drove out to the barn, and I sat in that barn the whole part of the day just thinking about what's happened 
and not really being able to piece it together. The Bandito Massacre becomes harder to understand the more that you think about it. There were eight people murdered, essentially for nothing. They were well on their way to being disowned by the Banditos internationally, and their patches were stitched together by the mother of a club member. As we've heard in this episode, on some levels, they weren't even really a motorcycle club. They were cosplaying one, and not even very well. The club has no future in Canada. American leadership has vowed to never return. There was some commentary before, during, and after the trial that this wasn't a big deal. It was just bad guys killing other bad guys. But that's not the case. There are children without their fathers and grandfathers, mothers who had to bury their sons, all because of what happened that night on Kellestine's farm. It wasn't something to be marginalized. John Mushedri, George Cryarakis, George Jessam, Paul Sinopoli, Frank Salerno, Mike Trotta, and Jamie Flans all have families who miss them. This wasn't a joke. It was a horrific event that changed and ruined lives. And in Shedden, a community once known for its rhubarb festival, but now known for a massacre, this will never be forgotten. The 519 Podcast was hosted by Scott Kitching and produced by Craig Needles, Haley Chang, and Patrick Megermans. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media. Thank you.